0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them.
1: Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that
0: we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
2: Think Health on 2 ser 107.3.
3: Hi. Welcome to the show. I'm Ellen lee Today, end-of-life decisions in dementia care.
1: For something which we know is a progressive illness, then these conversations should start at diagnosis. And part of the issue is in, in dementia is making sure that there is a timely diagnosis.
3: And why Indigenous footy players are making a mark. But first on the program intensive care can be a traumatic time for people suffering from illness but does the trauma ease after discharge people in intensive care are there because they are suffering from a serious medical condition such as lung problems that require a ventilator or recovering from life threatening surgery doug elliott is a professor of nursing in the faculty of health at uts he has been looking at life after intensive care and found that physical and mental health is seriously affected months after discharge.
0: It's really people who have got uh, some degree of organ failure. Often it's about whether or not they need to be um, have their breathing supported, so have been um, intubated and mechanically ventilated. So their respiratory failure is one thing. They may have some cardiovascular failure, so they might need some fluids or drugs to maintain their blood pressure. They might have some sepsis, so they might have an infection or inflammation that's a um, causing some problems with their other organs so it's again often there would be some kidney failure there may be some liver failure there there may be some issues with their coagulation
3: in intensive care how long on average are people spending there
0: It varies. Uh, So for people who do need um, breathing support, it's usually four or five days, maybe six days. They may be mechanically ventilated on the breathing support for three or four or five of those days.
3: What about when people are ready to be discharged from intensive care? What's the process? What happens next?
0: What's happening with the new structures of intensive cares is they now have a step down area called high dependency. And so that it now gives that ability to keep an eye close monitoring of the patients, but to start to take away some of the treatments that have been going on. So they may have their, um, their tube taken out of their throat. They may be able to breathe by themselves. They may be still on some fluids, but they might start to take out some um, central venous access lines and so forth. And so it's a staged approach these days um, so that by the time the patient gets to the general ward, um, they're much more um, able to do some things for themselves. In the ICU proper, it's one-to-one nursing here in Australia. So one person um, has one, one staff member. In the high, high dependency area, it would be a one-to-two or one-to-three ratio. And in the general wards, it could be one-to-six, one-to-eight.
3: So you're really going from having someone do everything for you to you becoming more independent?
0: Yes, yes. Um, it is changing in terms of our practice. So we're not, we're not keeping people fully um, asleep these days, so completely sedated. We want them to be able to be comfortable and calm but, but be able to obey our commands as well. So there is a bit more interaction happening now than when I started um, some years ago
3: when we're talking about that process from being in ICU to eventually being discharged from hospital, what's that time period?
0: Uh, It can vary again. So um, it it may be another week, it may be another two weeks. It really depends on what's going on. The way that Um, patients are managed in ICU is that there is um, an intensive care physician that looks after them, regardless of what their initial admission was. So they might have a surgical team, they might have a medical team, but while they're in ICU, they're managed by the the medical physician, the intensivist, and the staff around that. When patients are discharged to the ward, they then go back to their home team, and then they are managed, you know, from a surgical perspective or from a medical perspective. So it really depends on what's then the issues. So obviously, if it's someone with a trauma, they might have a long limb uh, fracture, and so they'd need to be managed from that perspective. So it does vary between medical type patients and surgical type patients, and of course, it varies if they are an emergency patient compared to a, an elective patient who may go into ICU for some close monitoring for 24, or 48 hours.
3: Your research has been looking at what happens to patients once they have left hospital. What sort of challenges do they have once they're out the door?
0: Yeah, it's a a really interesting space. And uh, part of it is about how we manage patients from the health service perspective. And so the issues that might crop up within ICU um, and some of the adverse effects about the critical illness uh, or the treatments that we give them to um, keep them alive may have some effects down the track. But for the most part, once they leave the ICU, uh, they then go back to their, as I was saying, their home team, either a medical based or surgical based team. And then, of course, when they go home from from hospital, they've then got their GP looking after them. So to some extent, not all of those um, medical teams and the related services around them have, an, uh, have a good, clear, comprehensive understanding of what might be some of the issues that those patients might suffer. And so we're interested in looking at what the recovery experiences have been like, whether or not there can be um, some improvement in the, in the time it takes for people to recover to their optimal function.
3: Some of the testing you've been doing has been looking at the physical outcomes. What what specifically have you been looking at?
0: We've been looking at um, a a range of things. So we've been looking at some of the physical um, aspects, some of the psychological aspects and and more recently some of the cognitive aspects. From a physical aspect perspective, one of the common um, tests that is used for um, people who are either recovering from um, a chronic pulmonary disease or cardiac surgery or cardiac disease, is a thing called the six-minute walk test. And so we use the six-minute walk test at home for patients who were recovering from a critical illness to see what their, um, their levels of fitness were like over time. Now, that's a sort of an artificial because we actually want to know more about how they' are able to function in their normal lives. So what's important for them from a physical perspective? Is it to get out in the garden to be able to bend over and, and get the weeds out to plant the plant the new seedlings? Is it about being able to walk down to the shops to pick up the milk or the, or the paper? so it's, it's those sorts of things that we want to try and get to in terms of finding out what's most important for those those people.
3: What about when we're talking about psychological health?
0: Yeah, so this is, again, a really interesting space. And so um, we've been using generic quality of life instruments to look at mental health um, in some patients. And there are also, obviously, some other types of instruments that can be used that, that focus particularly on things like stress. So it could be either acute stress for um, what what the patients are feeling like when they've been in an ICU. And, and ICU can be a very alien, very stressful place to be. There are also obviously issues around post-traumatic stress. And so post-traumatic stress is more of a chronic issue where um, they're still feeling signs of stress three or six months after the event.
3: So is it the actual event itself, the illness or the condition, or is it the what's happening in the intensive care that's stressing them? It, it's really
0: that? a combination of all of those things. So it's really about the critical illness. Um, it's then about some of the treatments that we've needed to give them to keep them alive that, that then have an effect on um, anxiety and depression uh, in particular, um, and also some some of the issues around the stressful events that they might remember or they might hallucinate about. So delirium, acute delirium, um, is is relatively common in these patients. And so um, we've had some really interesting research where we've wanted to know about the experiences, what they recall from their ICU ex- um, treatment. And some of that is very much around nightmares, hallucinations, things that they were seeing um, in reality that they then perceived in a, in a, in a completely different way.
3: What, have you, what has your study found when we're talking about the physical and psychological effects of people six months afterwards?
0: Yeah, so not everybody um, has physical um, or, or psychological effects. Some people recover really well. Um, and so what we're now trying to find out is how could we better screen for particular patients that might have some... Some risk of physical uh, lack of physical recovery, or they might be at risk of some sort of psychological um, dysfunction uh, you know six months out from their event so that's a really um, interesting space that we are trying to work out what those what that type of person. Um, is.
3: So screening's one, getting these different teams to work together while in the hospital. Is there anything else that your research has identified needs to start happening?
0: We've, we've been doing, not just us, but across the world, there's been lots of observational work around. And so we know that Health-related quality of life, issues around anxiety, depression, even cognitive ability, uh, is an issue for a certain proportion of patients who survive a critical illness. We don't yet know, yet, however, what interventions are going to work. What should we be doing for these people? And that's, that's the, the I think, the area that's going to, to move forward in the next couple of years.
3: Doug Elliott, Professor of Nursing in the Faculty of Health at UTS. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, on demand at 2SER.com and on your favourite podcast app. Making decisions about the end of your life is tough. Making those decisions for other people is even tougher. Now imagine how hard it would be if that person had dementia and suddenly you are alone in deciding how their life should be. Last month, the National Health and Medical Research Council launched Australia's first comprehensive guidelines for dementia care. Some of the guidelines include better diagnosis tools and more inclusion of families in decision-making, especially in regards to end-of-life decisions. Nina Kopel spoke with Mira Agar, Professor of Palliative Medicine at the University of Technology, Sydney, and one of the authors of the guidelines.
1: So in dementia, the major issue is that it is predictable that at some point in the course of the illness that the person will have reduced ability to speak for themselves and at some point will have no ability to provide a clear understanding to the people who are caring for them or making decisions for them about what their wishes are. The challenge is that that can happen, though, over a long period of time. And so care planning that happens in advance has to be revisited as things change. And what's more important is that there is a surrogate decision maker appointed by that person and that the person spends time helping that person understand what their values and wishes are so that there is someone who's able to interpret an individual situation when the time is needed. Um, rather than it just relying on something something that people have written down um, per se.
2: The first national guidelines have just been released. Do you think the federal government will take those guidelines on board about how people should plan for dementia? I think it's an
1: area where consumers, healthcare professionals, and also government is realising it's an area that um, needs to be improved. Not everyone feels comfortable coming home and sitting around the dining table and saying let's talk about the situation where I may be unwell or may not be able to make decisions for myself or where my life expectancy is limited. We often shy away from having those conversations. So, yes, government can put policies in place. Health professionals can be better equipped in having those conversations or supporting those conversations, but we as individuals also have to be willing to take on those conversations
2: and be part of the process. At what point do the guidelines recommend that people start planning for the future? So, I think we all
1: should have some general ideas, even if we are not unwell, about what our values and wishes would be. That guide the general principles that would guide um, the types of decisions that we make. Um, our values as a person, um, but then really, it for something which we know is a progressive illness then these conversations should start at diagnosis. Um, and part of the issue is in, in dementia is making sure that um, there is a timely diagnosis. You can't plan for something where you haven't been clearly explained in a way with proper assessment that that is the diagnosis and and this is the, the particular path that that illness may, may take. So there are many people who have cognitive impairment who remain undiagnosed for long periods of time, um,
2: which doesn't allow them to be proactively engaged in the, the planning process for their care. If someone was to receive a diagnosis for dementia and something that doesn't have a cure, what planning and what decisions need to be made in those initial stages?
1: So in the initial stages, it's really about that person understanding what particular values and wishes drive their approach to life. Um, it may be about thinking about their financial planning, their income, where they're going to live, who's paying the mortgage, are they providing care for someone else which is another situation that often arises, and then there are decisions around health care which may be decisions around how intensive would they wish treatment to be in the situation where a recovery full recovery wasn't expected, but also where they would like to be cared for um, for the majority of their illness, and were, would there be particular situations where those decisions might change. And then I think the other critical thing is to start thinking about who the best surrogate decision maker may be, and it may not be the same person for all those decisions. There might be someone in your family who's really good at organising the financial aspects, whereas someone else who might
2: be much more comfortable taking on maybe some of the healthcare decisions. How do you choose that person? Because it's such a big responsibility to ask someone to be that decision maker for you.
1: It's a complex decision. I think sometimes people think that it has to be your spouse or it has to be your firstborn son, but it's actually someone who um, feels confident to take on that role, um, who feels that they can sit and have those difficult conversations with you, and who feels that they are in a position that they would be able to, and feel um, that they would be able to advocate for your wishes um, in in a situation where that was, um, was
2: needed. How steadfast are the plans that people make in those initial stages? And if their minds do change in the midst of their illness, Is that a factor that needs to be considered later on?
1: We would expect
2: people to change their minds
1: um, and revisiting the... This is not something that you write down once, you put in the cupboard to be pulled out five years down the track. This is about an ongoing conversation and you don't tackle all of these questions and all of these challenges in one conversation. So it's a very iterative process. People change their mind and... The, the goal really is to provide them as much information and support to make the right decisions at that time, um, but also to equip their surrogate decision maker to understand the principles and the values and wishes underpinning that person's decision making style and process so that in any individual situation, which you can't predict every single one,
2: they can make the best choices for that person at that time. Is there a point at which the surrogate decision-maker is then responsible for all affairs, and how do you determine when that is? So and it's at the point where someone
1: no longer has capacity. But increasingly we're understanding that for certain decisions it's still possible to involve the person with dementia as much as possible. And so shared decision-making and supported decision-making is an area where we need to understand more so that we can
2: involve the person with dementia in those decisions for as long as possible and as, as much as possible. In questions about life support and your last decisions in life, how do you navigate the complex family politics that can come into play there while maintaining the person's initial wishes when they did make these plans?
1: We always ask the question, what do you think your mum might have wanted in this situation? If you ask people, what would you like for your mum? It's a slight change in wording, but it's putting, making them put themselves in the, their loved one's
2: shoes, which often changes the thinking and perspective that they make their decisions from. So We've now got the national guidelines. What's the next step that needs to happen to ensure that people are getting the right the right planning done and the right care at the end of their lives and during the course of dementia?
1: So there's a lot of good work being undertaken in Australia at the moment around advanced care planning. A lot of that work is being based in hospitals or in residential care. So we're looking at working with some organisations much earlier in the trajectory. So working with people in um, community organisations and also people who deliver healthcare at home to see if we can work out strategies to start some of these conversations earlier.
3: Mira Agar from UTS speaking with Nina Kopel. Coming up next, what makes Indigenous footy players so successful on the field?
1: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
3: Did you know that Aboriginal people make up 11 to 14% of Australia's rugby league and AFL teams? It's a fantastic achievement, especially considering Aboriginal people only make up 3% of Australia's population. So what is it about Indigenous people that make them so good at footy? John Evans is the Professor of Indigenous Health Education at UTS and is a Wiradjuri man from New South Wales. John spoke to eight Aboriginal players about their childhood to find out the key for success and has discovered three common elements among elite players.
4: The first is they play lots of informal games growing up, so things like they would get together and play games against each other, they would make up their own games, and they spend a lot of time um, sort of doing those sorts of things. The second thing uh, we found was that uh, they played lots of different sports, So you would often find that uh, an elite player in rugby league who was indigenous was could could have also been an elite player in other sports. So you know it wasn't uncommon for an AFL player to have been an elite rugby league or rugby union player. Growing up, and the third thing was we found that the guys in, that came out of our program came from communities where people were really passionate about sport. There was a real investment, and you know they felt uh, also venerated by the sorts of uh, pride that emanated from their success. And there was, but also on the sort of flip side, that they a lot of them felt that they. There was a responsibility to repay that at some stage in the future. So, those three things, along with some of the sort of things that they're born with, some of their their genetic ability.
3: You looked at Aboriginal players, and I understand that Aboriginal players have quite a high representative status in football based sport.
4: That's right, Ellen, it's a good observation. So, we know that between 11 and 14% of the elite player population in rugby league and uh, AFL are Indigenous. And if you look at some statistics also around, you know, the current um, Australian Rugby League team, uh, almost half their, the team is Indigenous. And you can look at other things like uh, in 2015, both the NRL and AFL Grand Finals, they're both uh, best and fairest players in those games are Indigenous. So the Norm Smith Medal went to Cyril Rioli. And in Rugby League, the Clive Churchill award went to um, Jonathan Thurston. So Aboriginal players aren't just participating. They're the the very pinnacle of the sport.
3: Which is very interesting that they do have such a high participation rate because Aboriginal people only make up 3% of Australia's general population.
4: Well, that's right. So that's, what I guess, what makes the study so interesting. Why does this group of people... Why do they perform at such a high level now on on, a, on quite a regular basis? So if you look at the development of both those particular sports since they become professional, and I, I guess also too when you look back in history and look at say the things that Nicky Winmar did in 1993 when he you know, sort, of, sort of started to speak out against racism, and I guess both those sports have tried since that point. To try and improve their connection with the indigenous community I mean we've still got issues uh, in in those sports around those particular issues about race and as, as Adam goods has experienced more recently but uh, the proof is there that you know that Aboriginal people are becoming uh, increasingly successful at those two sports and you know there's no reason to suggest that that's going to change in the future
3: you mentioned Adam Goods there and the issue of Indigenous people in sport, racism, it is a big one in Mm. Australia. Mm. Sport is also really big in Australia. Is the fact that more and more Indigenous people are being represented at such a high level, do you think that that can help combat some of the racism? Yeah,
4: look, I think, uh, you know, even though Adam Goodes' case has been um, well cited in the press and in the media, I think, you know, by, by actually talking about it and, you know, 40, 50 years ago, people in the media wouldn't comment on the way they do now so you know you've got very sophisticated media people you know trying to raise it as an issue you know, people like Ali Ali for instance has commented on the Adam goods and you know really good shows on television such as the Offsiders on the ABC have really contributed to a sophisticated nuanced debate about sport and they've actually helped to create um, a better understanding about racism
3: taking a step back to look at your research again you mentioned that informal sport was quite important in these communities i kind of think maybe it's a bit different because you think of non-indigenous community where organized sport is really
4: big so one of the things that we we noticed with the guys in in this particular study is that they played a lot of what we call informal sports or backyard sports or where they would just get together as a group and play games or have contests amongst themselves About a whole range of things everything from you know throwing sticks at a beehive and running away to you know, you know forcings backs and British Bulldog, and all those sorts of things that a lot of us grew up with, but it seems to be um, in a lot of communities where they don't have access to as much TV or technology, they, these guys seem to be playing more of it. So I think, um, you know, that's a really important feature, and it's something that's really hard to replicate in a in, in highly urbanized area. So, you know, a lot of kids who go to school in, in more urbanized areas might end up going to sort of like really formal skill development programs in, in, either through their sport or through their school. They probably don 't develop the same problem solving abilities that kids who are engaged in games all the time and have to work things out every day uh, rather than sort of just going through this sort of instructional process about how to be skillful at sport and I think that 's a, a really um, big difference between Aboriginal kids who grow up in those sorts of settings to non Aboriginal kids or even Aboriginal kids that grow up in highly structured environments. So I think there is a really significant difference between the sorts of skills that you develop in those open, contested, you know, really creative environments to ones that are um, uh, stricter and more formal and more uh, sort of based on instruction.
3: Interesting. So we should be getting kids to play in more informal settings than organisational structures.
4: Yeah, so I think there's two things there. You know, our schooling system now... um, you know, if you, you look at the, the sort of typical kid, he would probably get driven to school in the morning by his parents. Her parents probably had to pick him up in the afternoon. The opportunity to walk to school and to play in the park and do the sorts of things that maybe were was taken for granted 20 or 30 years ago doesn't happen now. So our our job is to get kids out playing, experimenting, um, you know, trying things and, you know, just chasing each other around in, in in the outside would be a big improvement. And we know from studies around physical activity um, that, that that doesn't happen as much as it should.
3: Were these eight case studies also all men? Yes they were. What about female participation in these communities?
4: Um, Well look I didn't, my my research didn't focus on that. This is some of the things that we'd like to tease out in the next bit of research that I'm doing around what is the role of sport in Aboriginal communities. So we're hoping that you know we'll be able to sort of work with a lot more women and be able to sort of um, even use women investigators for us to talk to people and just to try and find out you know, what the situation is for women because we know just from the ABS data that women, especially as they get older in you know, those teenage years, are reluctant to play sport, say, at the same level as their non-Indigenous counterparts or their non-Indigenous men. So if you to look at the the pecking order, it goes non-Indigenous men, non-Indigenous uh, females, and then you get a bit of a shift towards Indigenous men, and at the bottom you've got uh, Indigenous women. So there, there is there is a very strong argument there to make sure that we're doing more to, uh, with Aboriginal women, especially young girls, as they transition out of the sort of like primary school years into high school years to encourage them to play sport.
3: And John, you mentioned at the start of this interview that genetics does have a bit of a role to play. What sort of genetic... Traits do Aboriginal people have that maybe non-Indigenous people don't uh,
4: have. Look, I think uh, that there is a, a big debate in sport, especially amongst all the people interested in looking at skillfulness. Look, genetics do, genetics does play a part. So obviously, you know, if if you were going to play a sport, you know, that requires lots of speed and, and, and repetitive speed, you know, you want someone who's got good sprint ability. You know, they've got great vertical jump. They'll be good in the gym, all those sorts of things. But all those attributes become meaningless unless you've got the right environment to sort of develop the skills that go along with those attributes. So, you know, we often say, you know, if you're sitting on the couch and you've got all these fast twitch fibers and you've got great speed, it's not going to get any better. You know, you're just going to get cookie getting between the couch and the television. So there, there is a need to sort of understand that it's not just genetics. Genetics, obviously, a big part about being really good at sport, but also there's other things that go along with it, such as you know the environment you grow up in, uh, the importance of sport in your family, and you know, what sort of opportunities you get to play growing up, and you know what opportunities you get.
3: John Evans, professor of Indigenous Health Education at UTS. don't forget if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash think health you can also tweet us at 2ser please remember that journalists are not doctors if we've made you ask questions which is great go and see your gp this show is produced with the support of the university of technology sydney faculty of health i'm ellen see you next week for more